Alright, Minor Details is back. Hello. Friday, September 30th. And we're back in the studio. Yep, Marcus. Marcus is and right Chimp. here. Marcus and Chimp. What's going on, Mark and Mark? How's life? Doing good. Just been working. Uh, did a little bit of research about the topic we're going to do today. But Ooh, what are we talking about? We're going to be talking about the Sega Dreamcast. Oh, I love the Sega Dreamcast. Yes, recently, um, it was September 9th, 1999, when the Dreamcast came out here in the States and a year before in Japan. So we want to do a little episode on the Dreamcast. Uh, not too much, you know, just like the life of Sega and this and that. Yeah, we'll just primarily speak about the Dreamcast itself, maybe cover some games, a little bit about the history. But primarily, this is more of a celebration for Dreamcasts to remember it. Yes, yes. But first, I want to remind everyone, you could find us at Miami. Check out the website. I've been getting a little more into podcasting 2.0. If you don't know what that is, it's basically uh, kind of upgrading podcasting. Um, one of the things I'm going to start doing is you're going to see chapter images that appear on your podcast app where um, I'm going to set different markers where, you know, like, let's say this, we're talking about the hardware of the Dreamcast or a certain video game like Sonic Adventure. And then that chapter will appear and you'll see little images and stuff like that. So it's pretty cool. So check us out online. Uh, go to newpodcastapps.com. Get one of those podcasting 2.0 compliant apps so you can take advantage of those cool features. But anyway, so I would like to speak about a little bit about the origins of Sega itself. As you commented beforehand, um, we didn't record this conversation, but you said that it started out in Hawaii. Yeah, I was very interesting. I didn't know that Sega, the original Sega is actually an American company when you think about it, because like it was yes, started uh, Hawaii, Hawaii is an American territory. Absolutely. Yes. Um, that's right. So I guess. It was before it became a state. Hmm, I, I gotta look into that. Anyway, so Sega stands for Service Games, S-E-G-A. Um, and service because they would have like slot machines and, and you know, like... Good old gambling. At, um, what are they called? Roulette? Not roulette. Um, for the military, at, at bases and stuff like that. Slots? Yes. There we go. That's why it was service, because it was for service members. Oh, I see. The military, right. And I some, imagine this is during, or maybe a little bit after World War II, so there was an influx of soldiers going to, like, you know, Hawaii or, like, other vacation spots. Yeah, it didn't last, though. Once gambling became illegal in Hawaii, they kind of had to set up shop in Japan. Ooh. And that's where they stayed. So they went from gambling with the machines took that experience and went into video games. Right, yeah. Back then, there weren't really video games per se, but um, they were mostly buying all those machines and servicing them. And then they found out, like, okay, let's start making our own stuff rather than, like, buying other stuff out. And they started with something called Periscope. It was a submarine torpedo shooter simulator. Very early iteration of an arcade cabinet yes absolutely yes exactly and it was it was beautifully made you know it, it, and instead of video it had you know these little um i guess cutouts of you know the submarine and the water and everything so anyway in the 80s they really got into the arcades and they really stood out because they would make these arcade cabinets that were more interactive like for instance a really popular game they had was hang on and you actually had a giant motorcycle that you get on and ride 
another popular game, uh, Space Harrier, was a really popular um, rail shooter. And they really made their mark on the arcade world. The philosophy for Sega at the time was thinking the arcades are going to be the future. So I imagine that's what they try to put in the twist, try to make it as immersive as they can, thinking that this is going to be the future. This is me putting a, a guess out there on what the company was thinking, but based on the list we see on arcade cabinets, they really did try to change up the game or try to put in a unique twist with certain arcade cabinets. Yeah, I mean, at the time, the arcade scene was really huge and there wasn't really a home console scene. Your, um, what people had at home, like the Commodore 64, your MSX, um, stuff like that, were mostly keyboard computers that had the ability to play games if you know it wasn't really later until the 90s where um, Sega Nintendo started making consoles that were specifically for gaming the unfortunate thing with that philosophy is that a lot of people are now coming home to play games with the new rendition of video game consoles so that's taken a lot of that marketing or the market in the arcade cabinet and just go into a different location which forced sega to adopt a new strategy making consoles yes absolutely this was the beginning of the famed console wars nintendo had done very well with the famicom in japan and nes in the states uh sega's sg1000 was memorable but from a business point of view ultimately failed against nintendo and with the beginning of the 16-bit era, Sega adopted a very aggressive strategy in the States with the Genesis. One thing I would also like to mention very quickly is that Sega spent a lot of money on the marketing of its products, of its Sega Genesis. With um, quotes, with the little one-liner hits, and, and so on. But the unfortunate thing to that is that they ended up spending more money on the actual marketing than they actually did on bettering the console or putting that into like making better games. Yeah, they had a Michael Jackson's Moonwalker. <laughs> you know, yeah, that must yeah, have been expensive. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, getting Michael, that's not cheap. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they tried really to be the cool, edgy company, trying to create the image that owning a Genesis was a part of being the counterculture, directly opposite of that family-friendly image that Nintendo had, especially with the SNES. They were the hardcore gamers. Yes, absolutely. And then Sonic became that mascot, that that cool, yes. edgy, you know, I'm a badass, way better than Mario, so, you know, run laps around him. Yeah, yeah. I remember, um, I don't, I wasn't born when the Sega Genesis was around and stuff. I found out about Sega later. And when I found out about Sega, that was like my favorite thing about them, right? It was the only place where you could play Sonic games. Yeah, they had a lot of funny uh, marketing campaigns too. But unfortunately, that ultimately didn't work either. A lot of good memories, a lot of great games, a lot of good times. But when we look at it from a business point of view, Nintendo kicked ass. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. And now we start to have more players come into the, in, into the, um, to the ring, into the ring. Absolutely. Yep. Sony, you had Atari, uh, Atari had died, but, um, they kind of came back with the Jaguar, but not really, not really, but it was mostly Sony. Yeah. Sony was the bigger competitor at the time. The PlayStation one, when that released, that was the hot, uh, rich kid corner you know when you go hang out with the rich kid he got all the playstation all the new games right 
that was like the cream of the crop. You are the top kid. <laughs> Let's not forget um, several attachments. Before that, it was uh, f- Sega trying to make the Genesis last as long as possible with yes. all these different attachments. You had the Sega CD, which was trying to bring in the CD format. Obviously, that's where the future was going. You had a lot more space for games, better music. And there was also the 32X, which was trying to do 32-bit gaming still with that Genesis, but they were way too expensive. The unfortunate thing with that mindset with attachments to console is that it requires the consumer to already buy an attachment for something they already have, right? right? This does not encourage buying a new console, which Nintendo took advantage of. They had attachments, but at the end of the day, they knew when attachments were enough and they needed to just make a new console. They were looking at the future. Unfortunately, Sega thought that their console was the future already, thinking that they just add attachments and that's good. People will continue buying the Sega uh, Genesis. And what a weird thing to think. I mean, technology is continuously getting better every year, you know. There's always the new thing, but I guess back in the 90s that they weren't necessarily thinking about that. I also think there might they might have thought it might have been an appeal because thinking of like um, at the time Pokemon is around. So there's like collecting. There's a, like a, a market for collection for just collecting things. And I thought maybe this is the direction they're going, that it's not just the attachment to play a different game, but the attachment itself is almost like a collector item of some sort. Perhaps. Yeah. And then also backwards compatibility. You could still play your old Genesis library rather than going to something new. That could be also be part of it. That's something that definitely Nintendo took advantage of. Yes, yes. And again, Nintendo being their main competitor looked ahead in the future of yep. even their own games. I want to mention very quickly Donkey Kong Country and its revolutionary way of having a 3D model or like a 3D character in like a sprite background. Right, 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 right. Um, I think it was called Seven Mode where, yeah, you had the the model rotating in the background like to, to create that 3D feel, yet you had the sprites separate in the front. Next up to bat was the Sega Saturn, where Sega tried going really hardcore on the hardware. They actually had a dual CPU structure going. Like, Ooh. And um, I think the actual graphics were based on, instead of, you know, like everything's polygonal now, um, rather it's based on triangles, that was actually based on quartz. Yeah, no, that's, on, that's on, uh, on rectangular prisms. Yeah, it, it, it was four, a four-sided instead of three-sided. There's something. Uh, I took a little bit of 3D modeling, and uh, there's like a term for that because there's like modeling with a ball, there's modeling with a square, and then there's modeling with triangles. There we go. Yeah. So really advanced and everything. They were still trying to go for that arcade perfect um, feel. Unfortunately, it was really hard to develop for. It was also very expensive. When it came out, I think yes. it was like $400 or so. A lot of money at the time. Like, uh, if you account for inflation now for how much it's worth, I don't even want to know how much. Yeesh. Yeah, it would be a lot. But uh, one thing I want to clarify with the Saturn, um, this was a period where, again, they're going into that more hardcore aspect of gaming with the 3D 
polygons and so on. Mm -hmm. So now they're thinking this is our, now this is it. This is the Sega Saturn. We are going to be set with this because the CD is going to be the future, which, you know, at the end it was for a while. But the thing that unfortunately went against them is that the PlayStation that went against them, it just had better graphics. It had like everything the Sega Saturn could do. The PlayStation one was already kind of like the king of. Yeah. And the Saturn, um, Sega did a lot of dumb shit. Um, they purposely came out four months earlier to beat the PlayStation. They figured, oh, let's come out early. Mm. And so then people will buy Saturns instead of PlayStations because they knew the PlayStation was going to be a powerhouse. Again, reactionary response. And it was it ended up being a failure because they didn't they didn't even tell their their retailers. And a lot of them were pissed off. They're like, what? Are you serious? It's coming out now? And a, a lot of developers were pissed off, too, because now they have less time to come out with games, you know. Yes. Unfortunate so. that was a big blunder on Sega's part. One of many we will see. All right. So it did a little bit better in Japan because of that arcade culture over there. But that was quickly dying out here in the States. And again, for a while, the major console wars, in, in my opinion, in, ten, in, in terms of like where they mostly targeted the audience was in America. Right, right. So they gave up on gave up on that, and then now came the Sega Dreamcast. Woohoohoo! Yes, I have fond, fond memories of the Dreamcast, even Love though it. it was a commercial failure. It only lasted two or three years. It Ouch. has it has a special place in my heart, and it had a lot of great games. To be honest, it was a look into the future. They were the first to have um, a modem shipped a modem inside with the freaking console. It was a 56K modem, but hey, what other console had that? Very quickly, for those who um, are not technically inclined, the 56K modem essentially dial-up. Right, yes, dial-up. I remember my first computer had a 28.8 where it took like an hour for a one MP3 file to download. Hey man, but when it happened, you were like, holy shit. But 56K was an upgrade and it was enough to play a lot of cool games. But obviously now that's snail speed compared to what we have. At the time, Sega was kind of revolutionary with the use of different technologies within the console itself. For instance, it used a modem. It had an, an internet connection. I mean, that's already a big thing with early consoles. It was one of the first to add an internet connection to play with other people. Also had... It also continued the use of specialized controllers. Um, I remember PlayStation had a couple. Of course, uh, Super Nintendo and Nintendo had a couple. But these controllers were very unique. And it's just indicative of the Sega Dreamcast itself that they were, again, thinking ahead. But also to the detriment of the company, thinking this is going to be the console for the future. Yeah, I mean, they were kind of looking at their, their arcade routes. So they had a fishing controller that's just like, you know, you'd be at the arcade with a fishing controller. They actually had a keyboard and a mouse. They had really a bunch of different um, blasters available in different types, you know, from handguns and shotguns and all this. They continued their own trend of attachments. Right, right, right. So let's get a little bit into the, into the hardware. Um, I won't talk too much about the actual hardware itself. What's more so interesting is the development of the Dreamcast. 
ultimately they ended up with a hitachi sh4 processor for the cpu and a video logic power vr2 graphics card by nec uh, both japanese companies but they did have other stuff going on on the unfortunate thing with the graphics card chip is that they had they were in talks with 3d fx to sign on to help create the graphics card chip for the sega dreamcast now they were in talks with two different companies it was the 3d fx and um nec nec the unfortunate thing is that that leaked that information leaked and got to the public and sega got frustrated with that leak they blamed the 3d fx for that leak so unfortunately they just cut all ties with them which led to a lawsuit 3DFX claiming that they broke out of a contract too early. Yeah, breach of contract and they were um, basically saying that they made the deal in bad faith just trying to steal 3DFX's tech for their own stuff. But this was settled um, out of of court, court, so we don't really, we can't really say who was in the right or who in the wrong. In general, there was a lot of infighting between Sega of Japan and Sega of America. They both had different ideas of what should be with... Um, I mean, they were fighting, first of all, with Saturn. Uh, Sega of America never thought it should be that you know advanced on the inside. And then now with um, the Dreamcast, they tried going a little more... They tried saving some money. They weren't getting specialized, custom... Um, GPUs and CPUs from these companies, but they were getting really more off-the-shelf components. Third party. Yeah, third, or, third or party. Third, third party. <laughs> Something that was readily available. Still powerful, still um, still very useful, but it's not like it was a custom made just for them. This was actually advantageous for them and the software developers creating the games. They didn't have to learn programming for a new system Sega would just tell them, hey, just uh, make the game in mind for something similar for like a Pentium 2200, something that was already out, something similar, rather than something very customly made just for the Dreamcast. Just very quickly, it's very helpful for the developers. Oh, it's very important for the developers to be able to easily create these games. So on their end, when they received the uh, the dev kit for the Dreamcast, it was probably a little bit easier for them to program or make games on it. Absolutely. Yeah, I would say so. They also included a version of Windows CE. So it's basically, it was Windows for the Dreamcast. That doesn't, that doesn't mean the Dreamcast was more of a computer, but it just had libraries that were easier for, let's say, someone who was developing for Windows and had a Windows game, they would more easily port it to the Dreamcast. So they try to in- include all these different co- cost-saving things to make the Dreamcast more accessible and more successful. It kind of sounds like cross-platform stuff today. Right, right, right. Because there are... And, and again, that leads to um, my idea of Sega Dreamcast being like that almost revolutionary console. Because a lot of stuff we take it granted for today with our PlayStation uh, 5s and Xbox Ones using the internet and all that, we could attribute that back to the Dreamcast. Right, right. Um, the Genesis and the um, Super Nintendo did have some online connectivity, but it was mostly for downloading 
literally DLC. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and it was done through like through satellite connections. It was like a little add-on you had to buy. It, there was no online gaming in that sense in the console world. And again, you needed deep pockets for all this stuff. It wasn't cheap. It was not cheap. And then there's also the subscription service, all of that. Anyway, so we talked about the modem, and it was modular, if, if, if I forgot to mention that. Uh, what do you mean by modular? So you could literally just take it off the, the console. You didn't need soldering oh. skills. You didn't need to open it up. You literally just uh, press a little button, and the 56K modem came right out. The point of that was, if you wanted to go ahead and get the upgraded broadband modem, which was closer to, ga- um, to, to, to cable speeds, yes. definitely an upgrade. You could just buy that and put it right in and have a better experience. Again, that uh, again, it leads to that fact that they were thinking about the future of this console being it. Right. This was the future. So let's add every capability we can and make it user friendly. One thing that a lot of consoles, I guess video games and software in general, has suffered from was piracy. People, oh, yes. People copying software, p- copying games. Hackers reverse engineering systems and. Oh, um, do you have any experience just pirating? Do you did you ever pirate stuff? I I used to pirate um, a lot of PC games, and the only console I've ever pirated in my life was a PSP. I'm not going to talk about the illegal things I've done in my life, <laughs> but it certainly was easy for someone of my age to play free things or he, he did a lot of pirating ladies and gentlemen he did a lot of it also got a lot of viruses so hey Hell. <laughs> there's a um, there's a give and a take right nice trade-off so there's always been different solutions that companies have tried to reduce that piracy so to, to, to make it harder for for, for people yeah to share the games and stuff right because uh, uh, always at the be- a lot of people might not remember this. It was in arcades too. Remember, they would begin with like an FBI warning or the the piracy warning. That was like in games. Yeah, games and because right, also because of movies, so it was the oh, same yeah. culture, you know. Yeah. So the Dreamcast's approach to this was the GD ROM, the Giga Disk ROM. Now your typical CD held about seven hundred megabytes of of data, and DVD Quite big for the time. Yeah. Well. DVD technology was coming out and they knew that the PS2 was going to use DVD ROMs, which mm. was what 4.7 gigs, a huge, huge upgrade. But remember, Sega's trying to save money with the Dreamcast. Yep. So instead, they had Yamaha. Was it Yamaha? Yes, they had Yamaha develop the GD ROM, the Gigabit Disk ROM, which was obviously a gig instead of that um, those 700 megabytes. And it was much less than the DVD, but it was also much cheaper. They didn't have to invest in DVD t- t- technology. And just a quick mention, the reason why they're looking for all these solutions because they were spending way more money on this system than actually making money from it. I think they also had a lot of debts from the Saturn. Oh, yeah, that too. <laughs> Hell yeah, that too. <laughs> um, so, And it was interesting because these gigabit disks, these GD-ROMs were also used on their Naomi boards on, on the arcades. So it was a proprietary thing. And because of that, they weren't commercially readily available. In other words, you can't just go buy a bunch of GD ROMs to, to, to burn, you know? Yeah, yeah. And the way they were developed, the way the games were made, where they would have high-density 
tracks, I guess you could call them, like w- w- where there's more information on, on, a, on a single space on the CD. And then you had lower density tracks and they had this weird space in between them. So when you popped it into your computer, it wouldn't work because it, it just couldn't read the, the, the stuff that was there. In fact, they had a little, a little sound file that you could play that says, this is only meant to be played on a Sega Dreamcast. Oh, just to remind you. Just to remind you, right. The unfortunate thing about this all and really is that no matter how hard you try to prevent piracy, it's going to happen either way. And I understand that companies need to take action in the sense of we need to look at our hardware and figure out ways to prevent people from piracy, right? But unfortunately, at the time, Sega should have been obviously investing that money and technology into something else to help promote the life of the Sega Dreamcast itself. That's just my take on that. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a hard conversation Yeah, because whatever, I mean, we, we won't get into like personal uh, intellectual property. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a whole whole different monster (laughs) Um, conversation. I just wanted to mention that they were already losing money at this, I imagine, at this point, like even before making the Dreamcast. And they're still looking for other ways to keep their capital safe. Right. And so so they would argue, yeah, so th- let's do something like this so then we won't lose money, potential money th- th- that we can make. Yeah, yeah. So either way, the GD-ROM was actually a pretty good idea. It was a great solution. Yeah, but people still found a way around it right right no yeah. actually the funny thing was that the dreamcast sega made they spelt their own doom oh yeah so they had something called a mill cd a music live interactive cd it's something that they developed to make regular it was kind of like to make cds more multimedia oh so imagine your favorite band let's say rush yeah, they, they came out with a love rush with a mill CD of not only the tracks uh, from the album, but also video from um, live at Pink like, Pop. Like okay, live at a concert or something. Right, video yeah. the lyrics that that would come on screen, and the whole plan was to release to have these companies use the mill CD format to release stuff like this, and it'd be playable on the Dreamcast. It's almost like a DVD in a sense. There was a lot of stuff coming out like this actually around the time. Um, yes, CDs and CD-ROMs. So yeah, you had the music CD, you pop in your computer and you get to some extra features. So I'm seeing what you're saying. This kind of led to to piracy, right? This kind of helped out the pirates? Yeah, because the Dreamcast had native support for these mill CDs and they were just regular CDs, CD-ROMs. So they could actually put bootable code into those CDs the Dreamcast Ooh. would read it and they would crack it. It's your own homebrew. Exactly. Uh, homebrew, uh, load this up with uh, games or load this up with music or something. Absolutely. And it got so bad that there were hacker groups that would literally just release the entire Dreamcast library out. That would definitely, definitely hurt. I mean, piracy hurts um, every console like in different ways but as you put it it made it sound like this was a little bit easier for pirates to to pirate these games so i imagine that might have hit their capital a little bit more than in than intended right like they're intending to lose the company sega is like intended to lose a certain amount from piracy that's just like base uh speculation right but with this technology 
like as a double-edged sword kind of made it easier for the pirates so i'll imagine piracy was probably something that hurt not a lot but hurt the financials of dreamcast it's like you put all your expensive gear into a storage room and then you put the keys inside of you know like a cereal box or something (laughs) you like yeah like the fake rocks but this rock is really bright you know and and then you sell that it was they basically spelled their their own doom unfortunately and just want to say that probably wasn't the intended use of it right it was probably obviously not yeah obviously not completely fucked up They, they, they had their hands in so many different ideas but you know there was no coordination and just (laughs) that's a good point to point out about the dreamcast it has all these extra features but it's as you said at the beginning they had two different um offices sega of america and sega japan developing one console with very little communication in between so as you said they put their hands in all these little technological stuff eventually someone found an exploit yeah, and it seems like there were several exploits. I won't get too much into the whole piracy. It did create a huge homebrew community, though. There's Even to this day, there's a lot of games from indie developers coming out. And there's nothing illegal about that, you know. It's it's literally just these people making their own games and putting it out on, on the Dreamcast. It's still giving life to that system. Power to them. But, All power to them. But Keep those, it alive, brothers. The same technology also allows um, piracy, and that's what really fucks shit up, unfortunately. Yeah, that that's very unfortunate. Imagine you're losing money creating this console, and then a big piracy thing. That would suck. And it was balls to the wall. I mean, I don't know if you remember the Bleemcast. That was literally a PlayStation emulator for the Dreamcast. It was taking advantage of, <laughs> that's of, of that same technology. And, you know, and putting out um, a bunch of games on the Dreamcast. Why get a PlayStation when you could just Dreamcast? Exactly. Rumor was that basically Sony paid off all those hackers to just never do this again. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Sony would have the money to do that. Right. So moving on from piracy, let's get into the real reason why the Dreamcast was awesome. Yes, the games, the games, fantastic games. I remember... Um, um, excuse me, I was just going to say Soul Calibur. <laughs> Soul Calibur, absolutely. No, I'm joking. Um, Soul Calibur, yeah, was one of the OG original games that came out on Dreamcast. That was the game that I was like, I want a Dreamcast. Soul Calibur, even till nowadays, such an awesome fighting game. And it was right up the contenders of with Tekken and stuff. So it was in the uh, era of 3D area movement, uh, arena movement. And it's, it was just such a fun game to play. And again, great game to start off with for this Sega Dreamcast. It was fluid. It was beautiful. And it was for fulfilling that Sega promise of arcade perfect. Yeah. And that was, that is a good description. Arcade perfect. Because that was literally taking a great arcade machine, putting it on the Sega, and you could have problems with that. I mean, I understand that porting stuff in-house is probably a little bit easier, right? But there can be problems porting a fighting game to something that has, like, a little bit, I I imagine, like, less uh, power than, like, a whole arcade cabinet. Well, this was the advantage of using um, 
this um, a lot of the same hardware as their arcade cabinets. Yes. So it was an in that case it was an easy port. Not for all games, obviously. But yeah, for, yeah. In that case, it was an easy port. Another uh, bunch of great ports were Crazy Taxi. Crazy Taxi. That was a really popular game. That was a lot of fun. That's the one thing that uh, Sega had over the other competitors, that they had all the awesome arcade games. House of the Dead, House of the Dead 2, Crazy Taxi, as you mentioned. Time Crisis. Oh, Time Crisis. But Time Crisis also came on PlayStation 2. Right. So, um, but, you know, they still share the similar, you know, release and stuff. So, I still count that with Sega Dreamcast and stuff. And, of course, Power Stone. That was such a memorable game. That was, like, the first party game I played. I mean, I know, like, Mario uh, Party was already out on the 64 and stuff. Um, I didn't... My party is garbage compared to Power Stone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, Power Stone was the best one, in my opinion. Like, I like Mario Party, but, like, if I had to choose between Party and But can, and you, can you really Power compare Stone, them, though? I would pick Power Stone. Power Stone was a fighting game, while Mario Party is literally, like, a... Like like a party game, like it has all these little mini games. Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. It was like um one of the first like games where you could play with like four other players. Yeah, like next to each other, like a yeah party game. You know, I wouldn't call it a party game. Yeah, <laughs> all right, fighting game. Because a party game is like people who don't play video games can get together and and still enjoy it because it's very simple and basic. Like yeah, that's Power Stone. Power Stone was pretty simple and basic. It was only like two moves and a jump. Yeah. But then everybody would just, when they figured out the jump kick, everyone would just abuse that. Yeah, that's for sure. But, I mean, it was accessible, but to me it's more of a fighting game than something like Mario Party. It kind of reminds me a lot, like, of uh, Super Smash Bros. Like, Super Smash Bros. the 3D, essentially, you know? That's how I see it, but that was one of the games that brought me into Dreamcast. That, PSO, Fancy Star Online... And Fancy Star Online, one of the first um, ARPGs to be online. Yeah, Diablo-style RPG on a console. To be on online. a console, yeah. And again, using the um, using the the modem, the in-system modem for internet connectivity, along with playing other people, that blew my mind. As when I found that about Fancy Star Online, the fact that not only can I go online and play with other people, you know, come into my little dungeon runs and stuff and help me out. And another cool aspect along with this connectivity was the chat system. It was a very unique chat system at the time where you could set preset words or do certain um, emotes or little like happy faces and stuff. So it allowed you to communicate with like basically anyone on Earth. Right. Using your Dreamcast controller. Let's talk a little bit about the controller before we talk a little more about the games. Um, the controller was really unique, in, in, my, in my opinion. It's just, yeah. It had this really weird round shape to it. Like, there weren't... The only the real edges were at the bottom and a little bit at the top, but it was mostly a very round, very comfortable controller. The one thing that annoyed me about the controller, though, is that the cord was, like, on the bottom. Yeah. And that was... That just caused it to bend... When you played it. So um, I I remember people complaining that the cord would like just die out or something. Yeah, no, especially if you're like sitting down, you have your controller on your like stomach or on your whatever, your lap. And it's just it's pushing down on on that cord. The 
controller itself kind of reminds me a bit of the Xbox controller, like the first one, the Duke. Right. And um, I'm only mentioning that because they were kind of like, at the time, they were still de- developing like the... Uh, the Triggers. Uh, no, not the triggers, but the overall look of a controller. The, like, the important thing about gaming, of course, is the controller, right? So every new edition of a console, they try to change the controller to some aspect. And nowadays, I, I think they have, like, the base, the feel-good, comfortable, like, hand positions and all that. The the uh, Sega Dreamcast, it was big because it had a fit like some attachment to it right the virtual memory unit the vmu vmu this is another cool feature of the dreamcast it kind of started off what i think nintendo would later do with the switch and the wii u yeah that that little um basically a second screen it was right on your controller it it doubled as you know as your memory card but on certain games you would have like little let's say like it's a map of somewhere where you're at I have a mention very quick. Uh, Resident Evil Veronica, which only Code came Veronica. out. Oh, Code Veronica only came out on Dreamcast, and when you had a VMO, you had the uh, life indication, yep. like the little um, the 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 line. Right. I, I don't know the name of it. Yeah, yeah, the the, the your heart your, your heart thing. Yeah, Beep. the heartbeat monitor. Mm-hmm. That's the only experience I had with that. Uh, that's it. With uh, Sonic Adventure. They had these little dudes named, um, I, I, call, I always call them Kales, but apparently they're oh, Chows. So yeah, they're Chows. Yeah, I call them Chows. Chaos, Kale, it made sense to me as a kid. Anyway, so you would have them in the game. I, I can't remember, you collect them, you breed them. Yeah, you could breed them, you could feed them. Uh, right. There was actually a specific way of getting like the perfect Chow. Right. And it was like, literally you had to do really specific things. I remember... Um, when I played that with my friend, he was trying to do that. So I remember the memory I have that my like core memory of that with the chows is him abandoning a shitload of chows because every time they like would make a baby, he would be like, Oh, not the right one. And then just eat them. <laughs> yeah. I didn't really care about that. That's more of those people with like a Pokemon doing, you know, like trying to get the perfect stats. Yeah, the EVs but or the, whatever. But the interesting thing was that you IVs. could put them into your um put the 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 chows, the KOs into your VMU and then play it like a Tamagotchi. Yeah, yeah. Remember that Tamagotchi? You mm-hmm. like hold it around, shake it and you got a little, little pet. That was <laughs> such a weird concept for a while. Oh god, yeah. But yeah, very unique again, just to reiterate um all this future ideas all these ideas that they thought will continue the life of the sega which in turn it was nice attachments it was cool right let's talk about a little more more about attachments they had a fishing controller oh yeah yeah i love big bass fishing sega bass fishing oh yeah Sig- sega bass fishing <laughs> you also sorry. use it in sonic adventure too oh yeah for um for what's his name the big fat the, yeah the um biggie the cat biggie the cat i remember I remember playing Sonic Adventure, having fun with like Sonic, and then when it went to that part, I was like, "Ugh." <laughs> yeah, that was not a memorable part. No, <laughs> you had a keyboard and mouse, which is funny because when I was thinking about it, like consoles originally had keyboards. It was literally just a keyboard with you know the, the I guess the, the computer unit in the back, and then that kind of went away with you know this the console words we're talking about because it was just gaming focused. You don't yeah, need a keyboard. Just, yeah. And then now the keyboards are kind of coming back when you think about it. Because you could buy keyboards um, 
for the Dreamcast, you had a keyboard there. Oh yeah, for the Dreamcast, yeah. And even now, it's just you could just attach your USB keyboard to your console, and it works. Oh yeah, yeah. So that, that's um again Sega thinking all this future stuff, uh, future tech, and um it's very interesting with the keyboard too because the thing that probably most people got the keyboard for was typing of the dead because that was a fun game i i do remember they made other type of typing games but that was the most memorable one mostly typing at the bed uh, of the bed of the <laughs> dead you could use it you know in fantasy star online or if you're playing uh quake I oh played... yeah quake was an exclusive like quake 3 or something quake 3 arena yeah yeah i played a lot of that that was a lot of fun and Anything else we want to mention? Oh, yeah. So you had mentioned Fantasy Star Online, which was a big success for Sega. Yes. Yes. That was for a while, if I remember reading. That was like one of the big games on Sega. Yeah, that was a game changer. It really was. Um, It was headed by, just real quick, it was headed by Sonic Team Yuji Naka of of Sonic fame. um, He's basically the, the, the lead developer on most of the early Sonic games. But before Fantasy Star Online, they had developed Choo Choo Rocket as a way to basically test out the internet connectivity of the Dreamcast, its capabilities, and how it would work with with Sega servers. So they kind of wanted to see, okay, how, wh- how well is this going to work, and how many sprites can we have at once on the screen moving and still have the game be very fluid. That's one of my favorite things about gaming stories. Um, for instance, they created that game strictly for just testing the server. But uh, I would imagine while doing it, the team were probably playing the, playing it as a game and realized it's fun. And then decided, let's just make this a game then. Right? And I like moments like that in gaming. Just a quick little parallel with another game, Rocket League. If you know that game, it's a game where um, it's basically a soccer ball game with cars and they could do demolition derby style stuff. But beforehand, the game was just going to be a demolition derby game. And then they just added a ball literally at the last second of development, realized that was way better. And it's little things like that, that kind of like make stories like, uh, what was the name of the game? True to rocket. A little bit more interesting. Yeah. You mentioned that story on our FPS music episode if you haven't checked it out that was a great episode on fps music yes i love Choo rocket that was a really f- i love puzzle games so it was a great single player puzzle game that was different and innovative and then you could also play it online yeah it is madness uh just to name a couple of other games we said sonic adventure Ooh, sky you, you ever play skies of arcadia yeah that's oh, one game man. i wanted to speak about being like a revolutionary RPG game, yeah, and that was exclusive on the Dreamcast. Yep, when it, it when it released, yeah. yeah, until till it died. I until mean, until it died. Yeah, until Dreamcast died. Spoilers. Dreamcast Sorry, died. I killed it with a knife. E two, Marcus. Yeah, shut up, Dreamcast. <laughs> Man, there's a lot of games we could mention, uh, but just to mention a couple more, Jet Set Radio. Originally, Hell Jet Set yeah. Radio. Yeah. What was the other name? A Jet Grind Radio. Jet Grind Radio. Thanks. Which is which country? Jet Set Radio was the original name, but then when it came out here, they tried having it come out here. There was already copyright issues with the name Jet Set, so they changed it to Jet Grind. Yes, and a very memorable game for the Dreamcast. It was awesome. The, it almost was like a, a cell-shaded type of look. It, it was, was very... Car- okay, yeah, yeah, so I got it right. Nice. Um, and that, and in the personality... It, 
gave off right at the time like tony hawk pro skater was around you know so people were into that culture of the skating culture you know well let's mention real quick uh, you would basically skate around um tokyo shibuya and just tag up certain spots you know and each uh avoiding the cops yeah and at the same time like you were saying it was that tony hawk feel where you're grinding you're doing doing this and that yeah and had an awesome soundtrack it did have a point system right yeah yeah so yeah that was also another aspect getting the high scores and whatnot my favorite thing about the game was how each character had a different personality but not only that they they played differently right it was like a slight difference too like i remember there was a big guy and he was like usually heavier but he was like i think more stable or something but there was also like the base character which was the main character he kind of was the 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 jack of all trades and that right. was one of my favorite that and the music really yeah, the good music. music yeah that was, that was a great great little game yeah, there's a lot of great arcade games, also a lot of great fighting games. The, yep. The biggest one was definitely Marvel versus Capcom too. Everyone had that game. Oh my god. That was a huge game and it's still played nowadays obviously and I imagine there's still tournaments for it. But that was one of the few games that had like a comic book universe fighting in a video game universe. That was the thing that I got pumped up about for it. Like the fact that I could have Ryu fighting Cyclops. Right. <laughs> and the music was awesome. Oh yeah. Music was great. Levels were also very unique. I remember that for a fighting game, like the background levels were very, they were animated. They, they were, they exhumed a lot of personality. Another couple of great fighting games. Yeah, Guilty Gear came oh, out. Oh yeah, Guilty Gear. Yeah. Oh boy, the the beginning of Guilty Gear. Are you ready to rock? <laughs> oh man, so we can go on forever. Uh, uh, another game I would personally like to mention very quickly is a Gundam Side Story. I'm a big Gundam fan, and what I liked about Side Story is that the perspective was in the cockpit. And it worked like a big robot, so you weren't doing all the crazy anime moves. It was mostly like a military shooting sim. Yeah, no, let me just quickly mention, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Capcom versus SNK2, which was an awesome fighting game. Oh, my God. Two legendary fighting game companies duking it out. What more could you want as a fighting game enthusiast? That game still played today. And then my introduction to Grandia. The Grandia 2 came out on the Dreamcast. Awesome RPG if you haven't played it. I went back to play Grandia 1 and fell in love with that. So that's definitely a big part of me. But there's also a lot of weird games that came on the yes, Dreamcast. Yes, there was. One of them was... Seaman. Seaman, yes. <laughs> Narrated by fucking Lem- Leonard Nimoy. Lemon Nimoy. Lemon. <laughs> Lee Lemon, sir. Lee Lemon Nimoy. Yes. Um, and there's a lot of games that just came out in Japan. They're just very artsy, weird games. Yeah. We, we, we yeah, won't get I mean, too much into that. That's but. being nice. Oh, there was a game called Res. That was, it was a rail shooter, but it was, it was trying to simulate, um, you know how people can see, you know how people can hear colors, a synesthesia. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So this game Res was trying to simulate that, but as a rail shooter. Oh yeah, I remember. You're like a, a character, like you're like a silver dude, just like yeah, it's surfing in like right, like cyberspace or some shit. Exactly. Yeah, a lot of experimental games and whatnot. Yeah, but that's what made the Dreamcast awesome. You had 
a lot of different fighters. You had RPGs. You had these ex- crazy experimental games. You had Tokyo Bus Guy, which I wish came out in the States. I haven't even heard of that. What is it's that? Literally, it's a Tokyo Bus driving simulator. Oh, okay. <laughs> and you literally just drive around Tokyo and you pick up people and you drop them off. But it's it's made to look like real, real, not, not cartoonish. It's actually like... I just want to say very quickly, again, very revolutional. Because if you look at nowadays, a lot of gaming, a uh, gaming genre that's popular now is uh, simulator. Simulators, yep, yeah. Yeah. Farming simulator, truck simulator. They were on the precipice of like making these old, new trends. They were just too early. They were just way too early. I also got to mention a couple, um, Makin X, which was really a manga by Q Hayashida, if you know about Doro Hedoro. That's, that was a really cool, like, slasher game. And you also had, there was a Berserk game oh, on, on the yes, Dreamcast Oh, yes, I remember well. that. Yeah, yeah. It, the funny thing about that game, very quickly, I want to mention, um, it's not canon to the manga, but it has its own, like, universe canon. Right, right. Yeah. A lot of, lot of great games, but we had to leave for the end. Shamu. Hell yeah. Now Shamu, we could sit here and talk about it for hours, Shamu, but we're going to, the reason why we're leaving off on Shamu is because I suggested that we should leave it on that because Shamu costs $50 million to create. And as you said uh, before we spoke, this was a combined thing they were making one and two with the same engine so that's probably why the cost was that much but this is sega spending money they don't have hoping for a game to bring everyone to the dreamcast and shemu it's not that it didn't do that is that it required at the time a very specific type of gamer because originally shemu was supposed to be a virtual fighter knockoff or uh, virtual fighter mmo type of game they were using the virtual fighter um ip yeah and then it was actually being developed for the for the saturn but the then, saturn but then that was moves to the dreamcast yeah yeah by yu suzuki uh who was back like you were saying the 80s how sega was very popular with the arcade games he was he developed a lot of them um super hang on all of those but Shenmue was awesome. It was it was the first for a lot. You know, it like you said, that massive open world where literally you can touch anything, grab anything, pick up an orange on the floor. Um, you could and what else did they introduce? Um QTEs, quick time QTEs, events. Yep, yep, yep. I definitely remember those. It was this awesome story. Yeah, that was the main thing is that the story was very well written. They understood they had something good and they wanted to the game, all these aspects of the world with the touching of all this uh, collecting. Uh, there was a lot of collectibles. The, in the, guns, game. Yeah. Yeah. the whole point of those aspects was just to make the game more in, uh, immersive. Yeah. More and, it was, and it was very experimental at the time, because remember, the thought of gaming was it needs to have. Uh, an objective or it needs to have a certain uh, like a like a shooting element or a fighting game element yeah it's going from point A to point B but with Shenmue you could go to all the points you want to and then eventually go to B when you're ready exactly it gave you more avenues of choice right and that is the important legacy thing about uh, Shenmue the legacy it leaves is that a lot of RPG games today we have to thank Shenmue 
because without Shemu, a lot of those elements that we take for granted now for RPGs would not have existed. Yeah, they experimented with a lot. Unfortunately, you had to suffer through terrible loading times. Oh my God, just going from one part of the city to another was the longest wait in the world. Yeah, I would imagine um, programming it and stuff must have been like very confusing and hard right you know, like you mentioned they put a lot of money into it yeah so. they put shit loads of money into it and i just want to compare very quickly when the sega dreamcast the first like month of its release it it ranked in at least estimates are 150 million dollars in america specifically in america shemu again took 50 million dollars to make that's like one third of what it is of, of what the Sega Dreamcast released and, and brought in. So they, they were banking on this series. They were hoping this series would bring the Dreamcast up to the spotlight. And unfortunately it didn't. Uh, with, by 2001, the Dreamcast was discontinued and Sega decided to turn off their hardware division and just focus solely on software, publishing games, still developing some stuff. And that was the end for Sega. In my opinion, that was a good direction. They realized they were not in the console making business. They they kept making too many blunders beforehand and kept getting into too many problems. This was a smart move to switch over strictly to software it, publishing. And what did we get from that? We got a lot of amazing games nowadays because of that. One game series, definitely Yakuza series. Now, personally, I have not played the Yakuza series. I've seen um, other people play it, and I've seen gameplay videos, but I could even say that looks like a good game. Yeah, I've never played it myself either, but it looks freaking awesome. Another game I'd like to mention, they are also doing. They also did Yakuza Like a Dragon, uh, another Yakuza spinoff game, but again, they upgraded some stuff from the base game, and it looks really good. Alien Isolation. I did not know that they published that game. I love that game. Alien Isolation is a very good alien adaptation without it being like a cheap ripoff. Nice, nice. Um, they also did Total War Three Kingdoms. I played that one a little bit, and that changes the whole system with the hero system of the Total War system. Oh, they did Catherine. I love Catherine. That's actually with Sega and Atlas. Oh, nice. Yes, I, I remember seeing videos on that. It looked like it had a very interesting... Uh, premise and they did a ton 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 of sonic games which you know are hit or miss but it's always nice to see sonic it's always nice to see sonic coming around For yeah sure. all the time they uh i didn't know this either they did the valkyrie profile or the valkyrie chronicle series yeah they're um i see that a lot i still haven't actually played it myself good game very much like a xcom but has its own little twist one of the main things they've been doing for a long time, actually, is re-releasing old, old. Um, uh, yeah, like collection games. stuff. Collections, yeah, yeah, that's they. I see that on Steam a lot. They started that a, a while ago, actually. I, I believe on, on the Saturn it was, um, where it, uh, no, on the Dreamcast actually, where it was the Sega Smash Pack, oh. and they would have Sonic, they would have Columns, they would have um, Shinobi, 
And back then, that was, you know, un- very, very uncommon to be playing these old games on your brand new console. Yeah. But now <laughs> that's everywhere. Uh, very quickly. The Genesis Mini as well. Yeah. I wanted to say about the Genesis Mini, that's such a cool thing. You know, nowadays, like you could buy a little uh, miniature uh, Genesis. Genesis. Yeah. With all the ROMs installed in it, like all the games or something. Well, no, um, the uh, commercial one is just like. 10 to 15 games oh, okay and then people hack it oh, okay yeah to they be hack able to put, it all, to put the all the games okay yeah yeah again fighting that piracy real quick before we wrap up i just want to shoot out a couple pieces of trivia that i learned while doing research for this uh the little startup sound that you hear when you turn on the dreamcast was actually created by ryuichi sakamoto if you know about yellow magic orchestra that was a real popular band in the 70s in japan and they were iconic when it comes to like dance synth music but with that i don't know japanese feel and they're real influential to a lot of artists including myself nice so ryuchi sakamoto actually created that little ding 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 (laughs) yeah very memorable it's a very memorable little tune that and the playstation the original playstation startup are like instant nostalgia hits for me yeah absolutely and the port of Choo Choo Rocket to the Game Boy Advance was the first instance of a Sega game being published on a Nintendo console. That's just premonition right there. Yeah, foreshadowing. foreshadowing. The <laughs> yeah, it's foreshadowing life. And with that, and with that, I bid you adieu, Dreamcast. You live in our hearts forever. Hey, maybe there'll be a Dreamcast too in the future. Uh-huh.